Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing so well. How are you today, Tim? I am really great, Lance. And we are being joined again today by our guest, Mike. Mike was on the show a couple weeks ago and uh, really got some of the best reaction we've ever gotten from uh, an episode and from a guest. Yeah, especially a guest that's not related to the family or related to the accident itself. Uh, he was at UMass Amherst at the same time as Mora. Uh, he was a reporter there for the uh, the esteemed paper, The Collegiate. Um, and he is really articulate and really knows a lot. And, and not only was he there, but he has followed Mora's case for a long time and he has quietly put together a lot of details and he's got a lot of really valid questions uh the first time we talked to him we primarily focused right on uh UMass and we didn't intend to we wanted to talk about the accident site and the route in which she in which Mora went up to New Hampshire he was very interested to talk about that but he just had so much information we needed to make it into a two-parter and in this one, we do kind of deviate a little bit from the topic, uh, the intended topic as well. But we do end up talking about the location, how her car uh, was uh, found after the accident. And again, lots of good questions here. Yeah, lots of good questions. We talk a little bit about UMass, too. Some of uh, the lingering questions uh, that remained from the first episode. And then you're, I think you're right. We're probably going to have to have another episode with him um, because we really went on after we uh, stopped recording and uh, really just could have done another episode right then, I think. But I hope you enjoy this episode. And uh, oh, and check us out at CrimeCon House Arrest. That's November 21st from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern. It's a virtual CrimeCon event. It's going to be a lot of fun. It is. We couldn't make it to Orlando, Florida this year, so the fine people over there at Red Seat Ventures put together a virtual uh, crime con. It's going to be different, but yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. 
Okay, everybody, thanks a lot for listening. Welcome back to the podcast. Mike, how are you today? Doing okay, guys. How you guys doing? Oh, we can't complain. Um, what a great uh, conversation we had last time. We spoke for over an hour, uh, and we didn't even touch on what you really wanted to talk about, which was the uh, the accident scene. We stayed mostly at UMass because we found your information so, so interesting and useful. Um, so, yeah, we had to have you back on. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to do this again. No, thanks for you guys for having me back on. I think one thing I love to do is just talk about this case and see where conversation leads. And so to me, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. If we're talking about more, that's helping the situation and helping move everybody forward. So I'm just happy to engage in conversation with you guys again. Great. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, the episode with you, the first one, um, was maybe one of the best reactions we've ever gotten. And people really appreciate the perspective um, of a student back at UMass. And I think everyone is really interested in learning more about what UMass was like back then. And I'm glad to participate in, in kind of providing that information. Because again, the goal here is to to learn more, to to look into more things. And you know, I've had a couple of people ask me, well, can you tell me a little bit more about this theory or that theory that you presented on the episode? And I just want to be clear, I don't have any theories. I don't theorize that someone was living with Mora. I don't theorize that maybe she was using her dorm some other way. I think the important thing to do here is, like I said last time, to expand our thinking. Right. And on those phones, uh, did you have some some information um, based on the desk that we were talking about in uh, the first part? Yeah, so it's definitely been confirmed that there was a, a landline phone, and I think that information's out there. And I'm one of those people, I don't keep notes, so I definitely find myself you know, forgetting or glossing over other things that have been thrown out there in the past, but it's definitely been established that there's a landline at that, at that desk. But I think if you go back and read some earlier articles from the Caledonian Record, it made it clear that, they, that UMass police looked into a phone call that was made to Mora. And th this was where the quote came out that they were able to trace the location of the call, but the person who made the call was, was, had moved on. That to me, and again, I'm making assumptions here, but that to me certainly seems like they traced a landline call to a landline call. And I question why they would say, well, the person has moved on. Did that mean that it was a common house phone or a pay phone or a phone that multiple people may have used as opposed to a, a phone in a specific room. I, I think it's interesting to consider that if UMass police was asked to look into it and they had that type of information, that there's definitely some ambiguity out there about whether or not this came from somewhere on campus and where it might have been and what that means. Let, let me just try to clarify this uh, again. So you're talking about the call that upset Mora at her desk job on Thursday night before she went missing. Right. There's the 1030 cell phone call to Kathleen that gets attributed to being that. But it's kind of hard to piece together a 1030 call that makes you upset around, you know, one o'clock in the morning or whatever time it was. But there's also been reference to the fact that there was a later call after the midnight hour made to the landline phone at the desk. And that if you go back and look at the Caledonian record, I think was the, the paper that reported on this, they said, well, UMass police is quoted as saying that there was a call made and they traced the location of the call, but they were unsure of the caller because that person had moved on. So to me, that tells me that if they're asking UMass police as opposed to Amherst police or the phone company, to trace the origin of that call, then that call came from somewhere on campus or within the UMass system. And if that call came from a dorm, wouldn't they be able to attribute that dorm room to the person who lived there, who the person who made that call? But if they couldn't attribute the person who made the call, but they knew the location, that tells me that's a common phone somewhere. It's a pay right. phone or a house phone. phone or an office phone or some other phone where they could not nail down who the user was. Right, you're you're right. That that that's a payphone. I think that just ninety percent says payphone. Party house, maybe, but you're probably right. No, no. I think 
I think it's if they the fact that they said specifically we don't know the identity and they moved on. If even if it was a party house, that would be registered to whoever owned owned the house. Like there's they're literally saying someone picked up the phone and then left, and we don't know. Yeah, because they'd be able to question those people at the house if even if it was a crazy party, someone probably would have saw someone on the phone. Someone's associated to a uh, to a phone number if it's a residence like that. Uh, a pay phone. They're literally saying it's a pay phone. When I say house phone, what I'm more meaning is if UMass police is looking into this, that tells me that the call came from the UMass system. UMass has its own phone system on campus. There are quote unquote house phones in different dorms where there are phones that you can walk in and pick up the phone and make a call within the UMass system for free. So you walk by and pick, think of it as like the the system on campus where you're walking at night and you get scared and there's like a, a phone right, right there you can pick. You can make calls like that from other house phones on campus. I believe there's even some in, in common areas of the dorm where they could have said this call came to Mora from the house phone in XYZ location, but anybody could have used that. So we can't nail down who it was. That's what tells me that this phone call came from somewhere on the UMass campus. Because if it came from a house off campus, UMass police wouldn't be the ones looking into it. It would be Amherst police or it would be Haverhill asking the phone company, you know, different things like that. Right, right. And once again, we wanted to talk about, uh, you originally wanted to talk to us about the accident site. Uh, and now we've gone into this phone thing. This is so important because the phone call she got was uh, is so uh, researched and analyzed and investigated. And it's been narrowed down to something that happened on campus. It had to have happened on campus, right? That's what you're saying, because the UMass police are looking into it. If it happened off campus, uh, it wouldn't be the UMass police. And they said they it moved on. The person moved on. They know the location. They don't know the identity because the person moved on. So that is two options. One is it was a house, house phone that was publicly used or a pay phone on campus that was publicly used. Both of those scenarios present uh, different resolutions that could possibly impact the case. If it was a house phone, someone called Mora, they knew how to like go through campus. They knew how to get inside. So was it her sister? Did her si- She said my sister. Was it her sister that walked inside of UMass and picked up a house phone to call her? Or did someone pull up on campus and use a pay phone and call her? You know, it, it is big. It's a big it's a big thing to analyze here. Well, well, so so we know Morris said that uh, my, the my sister thing, but we do we know that that call that we're discussing right now is the one that upset Mora? I don't think, like with everything, I don't think we know anything, and that's why again I mentioned the fact that like I don't keep notes. I feel like there at any point there could be a point where we log off and we read something else about the case, and somebody's like, "Well, hey, remember this?" And I say, "Oh, maybe that kind of flies in the face of what I said," and I don't really. So I'm going to open that to the fact that I can't draw any conclusions from this because I feel like right. if anything, it's just opening more discussion, knowing that I could be way off base or be missing something that's already debunked some of this. I, I think it's just important to, to kind of draw the line along the fact that it's still strange that a 1030 phone call would have made her that upset three and a half hours later, two and a half hours later without some other event taking place in there. And if there was another phone call in between now and then, whether it's, and you know, it doesn't seem like it was the call to bill. So if another call came in at some point, you know, again, not drawing it back to the Vassy thing, because you guys know, I don't necessarily think that that's realistic, but if someone else was to have hit Vassy in her car or hit Vassy in general or anything, and this was the way they were notifying her of that, does that make it a little bit easier to identify that something like that might have happened if there was this phone call from a random location closer to the time of her breakdown? I think it opens the doors to things like that. Yeah, and uh, again, just looking at the article, so it, it does seem to directly say that 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 phone call is the one that made her upset. They think, um, even though, yeah, like we, we said, Mora said, "My sister." Um, she also said she had a roommate, so we know, and we know that wasn't exactly true on the books. She might have had someone else staying with her. I know that's been discussed. No, no evidence of that. So I guess what I'm saying is she bent the truth about that, most likely. Maybe she bent the truth about my sister. I don't know. But it is really interesting to see that the UMass police were able to track the call and not identify with 
who they were speaking with. And they said, uh, Davies here, UMass Detective Davies says her friends have no idea who called her. And I think if you go back and look at the UMass directory that people have referenced, it lists everybody's dorm phone number in there. So I'm pretty sure if they got a call from my dorm phone, they would be able to go back and look and say, hey, Mike lived in this dorm. This was the number assigned to him. He was the person that made this call. Whereas if the phone was, like we said, a pay phone or a house phone or even an office phone on UMass's campus, because all the different offices on UMass, whether it's, you know, in the education departments or the athletic departments, they could all call within the same UMass system. There's a lot of places you could call from on campus to another campus phone that would be very ambiguous to nail down who the caller was. I think to me, looking at that reference from the early days from the, from the Caledonian record, that to me points to the fact that there was a call from the UMass campus that may, I say may, because we don't know, have made her upset. I also think it's worth pointing out that we've all seen how the different narratives in the different media accounts have changed and varied over the years. And I think it could be attributed to lying you know, by the sources. It could also be attributed to incorrect reporting at different times. And so it's hard to, to nail down which one is, is the right way up. Sure is. Uh, a lot of telephone game uh, that happens in this case. I just want to say you're referring to the article in the Caledonian Record. It's uh, titled Family Friends of Moore Murray Upset with Investigation. And it's dated uh, February 27th, 2004. It was updated July 21st, 2016. Do you happen to know if the detail that we're speaking about with the um, phone call is, uh, was that part of the update or was that uh, part of the original article? I don't think we have any way of knowing without going directly to the source with that. Um, I think that's another part of it is I think one thing everybody can agree with is that different narratives have been written and rewritten over the years, literally and figuratively. And at this point, it's hard to nail down what the real narrative is. And that's why, again, this discussion is great. It's great to open our minds to these new ideas, just like we did in the last episode. But let's not confuse this with being a theory or, you know, a definitive thing that because this paper said that this is what it is. It sure looks that way, but we have to take everything with a grain of salt. Yeah. And I want to ask another question about UMass PD. And this came in from the YouTube comments from Braun. She wanted to know uh, how was the UMass PD perceived back then? Were they perceived as a joke? I mean, was this an official police force? Yeah, UMass, UMass had its own police department, and that's not all that uncommon in large universities, especially large public universities. I think the best way I can answer that is I'm not aware of any perception other than, you know, they were there and they did their jobs and they were just a, you know, a police outfit. They certainly worked closely with Amherst PD. Um, I don't think there's anything that I could say about them that would give any type of information one way or another to, to help this case. They were just UMass PD and they were there and they did their jobs and that was kind of what they were. And they have uh, like an actual, they have actually detectives uh, at UMass PD apparently. I mean, they have, a, it's a regular police force. It, it's okay. not the same size as, but I mean, if you think about it again, they're responsible for 20, 25,000 people. So they have to have a police force that has the same ability and staffing and wherewithal that, you know, any police force that, you know, protected 25,000 people did. So think of it like a small town or a small city. Well, okay. So in that line of thinking, let me ask this way. Um, like if the UMass PD showed up to break up a party, would people run? Were they afraid of them or were they just stay, kind of stay there and be like, okay, I'll wait, I'll, I'll uh, leave. No different than no different than if Amherst PD rolled up. Okay. You know, they they could do the same thing. There was little difference. I, I think there's probably differences that I'm not aware of in terms of ability to do different things and whatnot from a police perspective. But there was no perspective that UMass PD was any different than your regular PD. Okay. And um, were the resident monitors uh, affiliated to the UMass PD in any way? Did they speak about any of the actions that took place in the dorms, residences, anything like that? Not that I have any knowledge of. All right. So if you want, we can move on to the crash site up in uh, up in Haverhill, New Hampshire, North Haverhill. Uh, you really wanted to talk about that. Uh, is there something that you want to start off with, something that stands out? 
one thing in, in 16 years of reviewing this case that has always been difficult for me to reconcile is why she was where she was. Because context for people that don't know the area, I'm a skier. I've been a skier my whole life. I ski all over New England, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. I've made the trip back and forth from UMass to any of the New Hampshire points she was theorized to go to, Bretton Woods, Atitash, Loon, any of those places. I've made that trip a million times. The way that she went is never the way that you would go to go to any of those places, especially in the MapQuest era where you would have tried to print out directions or write down directions, things like that. If you wanted to go from UMass to points in the White Mountains, you would either go up 91 to Brattleboro, Vermont, get off and go over the river to Keene, and then take this local Route 9 up to Concord, and then get on 93 and go the rest of the way. Or you would go up to 495 East in Massachusetts and get up and go 93 the whole way. There, Even if you MapQuest or Google those directions now, it would never take you past the crash site. It could give you a direction that is close to the crash site, but it would pick up 112 where 116 comes in. So I, I think I would include this for context. I've lived in New Hampshire for a couple of different times, several different points in my life. I'm not originally from there and I'm not anywhere near that area, but both the fact that I'm a skier and I ski around that area the whole, you know, all the time and the fact that I've lived in New Hampshire in a couple of different places and the fact that I'm so interested in this case, I have never been within 20 miles of that crash site in my entire life. And I think that tells you a little bit about how strange and remote that area is where she was, because even someone like me who would have every reason to have been there, I've never even been close to it. But the fact that she may have looked at this map and said, if I wanted to go that way, if I wanted to go to Lincoln, if I wanted to go to the Mount Washington Valley, I'll just go pick up 112 up here. To me, that's still way out of the way and a very suspicious idea, given the fact that her car wasn't running well. But I do think it's the only theory that I've ever heard that explains why she was up there. And I do buy into the fact that if that was the case, it does tell us that her destination was fluid and that maybe she was trying to go to Burlington area, hit 89 and either missed it or made a decision to go the other way. I would trend towards the fact that she missed it because even when you got to 89, if you decided I'm going to go to Lincoln, there's a local route four right there where you can get right off. And that brings you right over to Concord where you hit 93 and keep going the whole way. It's still way out of the way to go all the way up and around like she supposedly was. And I think if that's the case, then the question becomes, well, what do we know about the fact that her destination was fluid? What does that tell us? Like we can't draw conclusions because we don't know, but that's another piece of information to kind of put in our back pocket and say, okay, if this tells us her destination was fluid, where can we go from that point? Yeah. Interesting stuff. So yeah, so we know that uh, Fred Murray believes she was headed to Bartlett. Uh, we know that she called some condos, one in New Hampshire. We know she called uh, Stowe in Vermont. She also had directions to Burlington, Vermont, which I realized recently we don't really know where in Burlington she was headed. So I wonder if there was an address that was printed out that we don't, you know, we're not aware of right now. That's a holdback potentially. Um, so I see what you're saying. Like, uh, yeah, that that she wouldn't have gone that far north on 91 if she wasn't still potentially planning on going to Burlington, Vermont. If she was going to Burlington, she would have got off at 89. And if her initial destination was Lincoln, Attitash, Bretton Woods, she never would have gone that far on 91. She would have gone either of the two routes that I went. The only that I earlier mentioned, the only reason she would go up there if her destination was fluid was she got to 89 and missed it and said the heck with it or something else told her, I'm not gonna to go to Burlington, I'm gonna go this way. And I would reference back to the earlier episode that you guys had with Clint Harding. I think that pokes a hole a little bit in my suspicion around that location being where she was, in that he pointed out that they had just been to those two places the previous Columbus Day. It's very possible that going from Burlington to there in the previous Columbus Day, they had gone up that way for whatever reason. I don't think so, because Fred has said specifically she wasn't familiar with that area, but 112 is a well-known road in New Hampshire because of the Kankamangas Highway. And so if she saw this 112 on her map, she could say, okay, I know this road, it'll take me to Lincoln, I'm gonna go there. That being said, 
the stretch of 112 where she was is not a well-known part of that. And like I illustrated, even people that, that live here and spend a lot of time here, you don't end up in that part of the state. It's interesting. We can pretty much um, check off Burlington, Vermont as a destination because she's just traveling in the opposite direction once she gets off of 91, correct? Uh, for anyone who doesn't know the area, she's tra- Burlington is to the west of where she's traveling. If you were to go to Burlington, you would have got on 89, yeah. which happens miles and miles and miles before you get off to go to 112. And that's why I said, even if she got to 89, even if she knew that she had to make a call at 89, if her decision then was to go to the White Mountains, she still, in my opinion, wouldn't have gone up and around that way if she knew where she was going. Now, if she missed her exit because she was drinking and driving, distracted, whatever reason, and she was 20, 30 miles past 89 before she realized it, then she might look at her map and say, hey, here's 112. I know that brings me to Lincoln. I'm going to go this way. I do think that holds water. I still don't think it discounts how strange it is that she ended up where she was. Yeah, let me uh, let me just posit something real quick that uh, really the spot where 91 and 89 meet um, could be the area where she got off to get gas. Uh, we know her car had gotten gas after she had left UMass at some point, uh, based on how many how much gas uh, we believe she had in her car. So um, maybe she maybe she did just get on the wrong road after getting gas. I mean, that seemed. I'm looking at the map now, and it seems like a little bit of a complicated uh, area where there's definitely gas stations and there's two two interstates meet. Um, wouldn't be the first time someone got on the wrong, the wrong one. The only thing uh, yeah. I, would, I would point out to that is the fact that, you know, some of the post-accident reports have pointed out that her fuel tank was incredibly full and that it, it certainly appeared as if she got gas within 10 to 12 miles of the accident scene. That does not mean that she didn't make another stop on her trip. We know there's a missing hour in here somewhere that can be attributed to a number of different things. And I think that plays a role in the whole story, but I think it's worth poking holes in my own questions about the route, because I think this idea of some fluidity and her having that specific reference in her car that could have led her to the familiar Route 112 does present a scenario that explains why she ended up there. It, it is it is pretty strange. There's uh, that interchange right there uh, with 89 and 91. Um, it's pretty clear. I can see someone missing it, but it's pretty clear when you're heading up on that highway, this is where you go to get to Vermont, and this is where you go to stay in New Hampshire. There's signage beforehand. It's not like, there there it is. I, I just missed it. There's there's miles of signage before. I don't know, in 2004, there just must have been. There's always there's always signage when, when, you're, uh, when you're coming to an interstate like that, uh, splitting off. But do you have any theory as to like why she would continue on if she had missed it? Because there's other areas where she could have, um, where she could have uh, gotten off and and perhaps gone to another location. And then, if she still wanted to go to Vermont, there's a uh, 302 that she could have taken over to Vermont, I believe. Um, yeah, and can can I just point out that that the gas station at that area of Interstate Change uh, eighty between eighty nine and ninety one, and where Morris' car ended up was maybe about forty five miles away. So to your point, Mike, that's a lot more than ten. I I do think it would be incredibly strange if she missed that exit because that's one of the major interstate interchanges in the area. It's you're talking about your major east west Vermont interstate and your major north south new hampshire vermont massachusetts connecticut interstate it would be really hard to miss that but if she's drinking and driving if she is distracted could you miss it yeah does that make you think that there was something going on absolutely and i completely subscribe to the theory that if if that was me i would have had to have missed it by 20 or 30 miles to avoid just turning around and either, first of all, 89 goes back southeast. So you wouldn't say I'm gonna go back 89 because you're heading back in the wrong direction. But at the same time, that would be the easiest way to go back. But more so than that, if you look at a map, there is a local route four that comes in almost right near the interchange in the White River Junction area, where if she decided right then, I'm gonna go to, to this place in New Hampshire, or if I miss the exit by a couple, but I wanna go to New Hampshire, that's the road I'm taking to get across the state to get back to 93, which is the way, pe- the way people from Massachusetts know how to go to New Hampshire. 
if you were drinking and driving or otherwise distracted and missed your exit by 20-ish miles because you're really in a tough state of whatever's happening, that's how I see that playing out where you look at the map and say, okay, I'm trying to get to Lincoln. I'm just going to keep going up there. But I can't underscore enough, like I said at the beginning, that that is not a place that people generally go in the state of New Hampshire. And it's not like that area. Like Fred said, it wasn't known to her. It's not like that area is like, oh, I know the Woodsville area. I'll go up there. That's a very remote, isolated part of the state. And I find it to be strange in any scenario that she made it up to that point. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Oh, it's it's really good to hear somebody who has had experience driving up there for the destinations that people say Mora might have been traveling uh, because of, like skiing or you know going to um, uh, one of the resorts, like you know Brent Woods or something. Someone who's been up there numerous times. Uh, we've said that her car was found in an area that isn't as remote as people think but the overall area you're talking about that stretch of road is remote it just happens that her car was found in between um four houses four or five houses in that stretch so it is a populated i guess a uh, residential area but in order to get there like your destination almost has to be um thought out and planned it's it's not something where you would turn off and and especially at like seven o'clock at night in you know the middle of winter like i'm it's it's not like a uh it's not a scenic area you'd go at that particular time of the year at I think that the, night the best way that i can explain it is that northern new hampshire and the white mountains is a is a tourism-based area people go to points in in the white mountains in northern new hampshire to go skiing to go leaf peeping to to do hiking and and all the stuff that more and her family seem to do there is pretty much nothing if not nothing at all in that entire area where her car was found i would even say within a 20 mile radius that would draw any type of common tourist to that area kind of what you just said if if you were in that area it was very likely to mean one of only two things you were going to that area for a reason or you were going through that area on the way to somewhere else which was your destination and i think it's very easy to surmise that Mora was going through that area on her way somewhere else. But that brings me back to the question of why was she going that way? Because people have thrown out, well, maybe she was going to the UMass cabin. The directions to the UMass cabin put a lot of, you know, put you in that, in that general area. They still don't take you past that part of 112. And so even if you were going up to that area to go to the UMass cabin, it wouldn't take you past the weather barn corner. Even if you were to go up that way, looking at a map, to get to 112 to go to Lincoln, it's still coming from the south would take you 116 to the intersection of 116 and 112. It would not take you past the weather barn corner. Could Mora have just followed her little map because she was familiar with 112 and wanted to keep it simple? Yes, but 112 doesn't intersect with the highway. 302 does, 116 does. So if she was just following her map to get to 112, why didn't she get off before she did and take 116 up to 112? Maybe her map was a little too rudimentary and only had 112 coming in at 302 because of the fact that it was a Vermont map and not a New Hampshire map. Definitely possible. But as I've said several times, still strange. Yeah, this is this is incredible to wrap your head around because if she was if she had left UMass and was on 91 and her location, her destination was fluid, she had to have made the decision to go to Lincoln after 
uh, that after Keene, New Hampshire, after passing Keene, New Hampshire, because to get to Lincoln, even on a MapQuest map, you would take that, I think it's Route 9, you'd take that over to 93, and then it's a straight shot, right? It's a straight shot north. Um, you're going super roundabout if you're going up 91 and then cutting over that way on 112, which you said isn't even off the highway. So her decision to go to Lincoln, if in fact she was going to Lincoln or anywhere on 93, was made after passing that Route 9 opportunity cutting through Keene, New Hampshire, and that's southern New Hampshire. Agreed. The only caveat would be if she had a reason to be in the area that she was found. But even if you look at that route that you just described, which is the route that I would have taken if I was going, and I did take many times, and not just Lincoln, to Bretton Woods, to Attitash, to anywhere in in the Mount Washington Valley, any points in the White Mountains, you would go that way. Say you say, I don't want to drive this local road at night. I want to stay on the highway. You still wouldn't go the way she went. You would take Route 2 east to 495 in Massachusetts, take 495 to 93, and go 93 up the whole way. You look on a MapQuest or a Google Maps or directions right now, it still gives you that as an option. All of these are options before the one that she took. And even if you find, sometimes Google Maps nowadays will give you directions up in the area where she took. Like I said before, it doesn't take you past the stretch of 112 where she was found. It takes you to the point of 112 where it runs to 116 and nothing before that. So I I agree. I think if she made the decision to go there, she wouldn't have gone the way that she did. So it either tells us that she wanted to go to the area where she was, which I have no reason to believe because we have no evidence of that, or her destination was fluid and there was some kind of craziness going on around the time where she had to make her decision and she ended up that way. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. I put in the directions from UMass Amherst to uh, Bartlett and um, yeah, it takes you, you're exactly right. It takes you on one sick, or I should say uh, the secondary route takes you across that mountain pass uh, 116 and then later connects you to 112. But again, to your point, that's past uh, the accident point on 112. That's like six miles down um, the way we believe Mora was heading uh, where 112 and 116 meet. So if, and if that was what she did, then she was going the other way. Then she was going west. I, I do think, not to come, keep coming back to this, but I do think that what has been thrown out there about the Vermont attractions map is very valid. That that map, that map was a map of Vermont. And you guys have seen maps like that before. It shows little pieces of bordering states with only very basic roads coming in. I do think it's possible that if she looked at that map, it may have shown 112 coming into the 302 area but maybe not 116 or maybe not another direction. And she looked at that map and said, here's 112. I know that brings me east to where I want to go. I'm going to piece my way up there and get to 112 because I know that brings me to where I want to go. Is that the best way to go about taking the road trip that she did? I don't think so. And I mean, the elephant in the room is if her car was down a cylinder and running terribly, why is she driving all over the place in these out of, you know, out of the way areas to go somewhere when you'd think, I mean, that's my problem with this license reinstatement theory. If her car barely rode, why would she take this multi-state roundabout gigantic circle of a road trip to go pay that, that fee when she would go directly there because her car barely runs? Maybe she doesn't want to drive on New Hampshire roads for as, you know, as little as possible because her license is suspended. Any of the previous routes in terms of taking Route 4 over to Concord would be much, much less driving on New Hampshire roads than the way that she did. Why is she driving her beater car that barely ran all the way up where she was? On a suspended license in New Hampshire. Right. And who knows if she really knew about that? I do think that's important information, and I think there's a good chance that she might have here's the other thing. And I mean, again, I've seen this speculated about, and again, this is not me trying to paint this as a, as a theory, but more just opening up to some of the other possibilities. Given what we know about what was happening in her life and her presentation that Thursday night, it's very post possible that she had some kind of psychological event. It's very possible that she had some kind of disassociative break that she could have been in a fugue state and, looking to, to move as quickly as possible to get out of where she was, and that maybe all of the things that she were do, was doing were not logical because they weren't coming from a logical place in her own mind. 
And we've been spending all these years trying to pin him down from a logical standpoint. And it's very possible that they could have been very illogical and interconnected because her mind wasn't in the right, you know, the right place. And I don't want to put that on her because I have, I, I have no evidence that that's the case, but it's another way to think about the fact that there are a lot of possibilities out there that are very possible that we have to be open to because the things that we've already been considering aren't leading us anywhere. Yeah, well, it certainly opened uh, opened my eyes to a bit of uh, a bit of possible a few possibilities here. Um, there's so many things that you just kind of dismiss when you're looking at the case, like the route and 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 even. Um, her stopping for the uh, the the cash that she took out of her bank account. A lot of these things are are details that you read and you say, okay, well that happened. Um, I'm not sure why exactly she took that route up, but hey, she took that route up. Uh, is that important? I I think at this point, just talking about it, I think it is. I I think it is uh, because either, like you said, it opens you up to the possibility to, you know, to the consideration that she might have not been in the right state of mind, that there might have been something that happened prior uh, that, you know, that night or maybe during maybe the accident uh, that she had with her dad's car. Maybe something happened during that accident that put her into this fugue state. Um which is entirely possible. You know, people do have these states before and they go through entire days without realizing it and they come out of it and people tell them what, what happened. Um, this is entirely possible, something that isn't considered very often. So where does that bring us? You know what I mean? Like if she was in this fugue state, where does that bring us? So she did end up there. She didn't realize she was driving in that direction. She didn't realize what she was doing. And she's there and she's able to have conversations. So no one really recognizes that this is somebody who's having some sort of mental break. Where does that bring us? Someone took advantage of somebody who's having a mental break now. Um, and if not, then the destination is there because it's so I mean, I'm 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 speaking totally hypothetical. Then the destination is along that route it's at the other end of that route it's at the other end of of that town or whatever she's going in that direction for the purpose of her specific destination i think that's those are two very interesting scenarios if you understand the psychology of things like that people who have dissociative events are you know in situations like this you you don't necessarily know from an outward perspective that they're having a psychological event you know they could present as they typically did but it's what's going on in their head that is not presenting as it normally would. So people could have encountered her in the previous days and not known anything was up other than, you know, the break, you know, the event that she supposedly had Thursday night. But in, in her mind, things are moving in a very disconnected or disoriented way. I think, you know, I told you guys before that I don't have any theories in this case and I don't. And people have always tried to pin down, well, you got to have something. You got to think of something. If I was to create a theory in this case, this is what I would tell you. I believe that if we looked at this case for 16 years and haven't come up with anything, that tells us something. And if there was some kind of conspiracy involving multiple people, I tend to think that over the years, somebody would have cracked or something would have cracked and we would have heard about this. If I was to theorize what happened to her, there was a random event that happened in her life that none of us could ever predict. Something completely random, whether it's someone she met being in the wrong place at the wrong time, a psychological event, anything that for 16 years we could do, you could do 16 more years of investigating, we never would have been able to predict what this random event was. And this random event set either was the, the situation, you know, I think the most likely is she was in the wrong place at the wrong time with a local dirtbag, to use Fred's words. That makes a lot of sense. But we can't predict any of those things because it was that random. And so either that random event led to her disappearance and demise or set into motion the events that led to that. And because the random event was the catalyst, we have no way of predicting that. And so I think we might be stuck in a situation where the only thing that we can do in looking into this case is to try to find out where the random event interacted with her life and set in motion what ended up leading to her disappearance. And we may or may not be able to do that, but I think that's why 
there are lots of people, whether they realize it or not, that are so focused on making sure we go back and look at UMass, making sure we look at this and that. Because for all we know, the random event happened at UMass, and it may have been something like a psychological break or anything else that led her to be in Haverhill at that point, which led to her running into a local dirtbag. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, uh, Mike. How, um, how frustrating. Uh, obviously, it's hard to get to the conclusion of something if you don't know things along the way you almost have to stumble into the answer right or or what, what what you're saying it really makes a lot of really makes a lot of sense as far as like the randomness of it and and trying to figure out the catalyst of that randomness so uh you you have to almost backtrack from the accident that's when you were explaining it that's sort of what i was thinking was okay well what would have happened to introduce that randomness and and stopping at the gas station opens her up for people to view her so there's there's an opportunity for randomness to happen somebody views her some say it all the time, some opportunistic uh, individual who wanted to do some harm, someone views her at, at the gas station because that's the opportunity for randomness. And we know, we, we, we've been revisiting some of our old episodes and we revisited one with Bobby Chacon, who's a uh, former FBI agent, and um, he was talking about Israel Keys because he was involved in that case. And, and Israel Keys would thrive on randomness. He literally said... Uh, I know exactly how to not get caught. You make it random. You go over state borders. Randomness was the key for him. N- no connection to the victim. No, no connection to the victim's family or the location over a period of time, and you'll get away with it. Uh, so, yeah, where did that randomness happen? Where was the opportunity for that to happen? It's probably just a handful of times on the way up. And I think yeah. it ties right back into the conversation we had previously about we don't know who talk, who she talked to on her dorm phone. We don't know if the randomness was some arrangement that she made with a friend from UMass or from somewhere else. And I mean, I, I think one thing that I would add to kind of the randomness of potential contacts on the phone that we didn't touch on last time is in that era, we did a lot of our communicating on AOL Instant Messenger, AIM. And if you were to meet somebody in a random situation, whether it was a party somewhere else, you didn't, not everybody had cell phones back then. You didn't necessarily exchange your cell phone number. You exchanged your AIM screen name. Hey, I am me, you know, things like that. We don't know necessarily who she was communicating with. It is very possible that she was communicating with someone via AIM that nobody in her life knows that she knew. Somebody that she met randomly. I think that's another example of something that could have happened where she could be communicating and have this whole dialogue with somebody random about doing something random and we don't know about it. Yeah. And uh, to your point, Lance, about the gas station being, being a spot where Mora was sighted, uh, it could be driving too. Um, just to open that up a little bit more. I mean, how many road rage incidents do we see while driving? I think for me, this leads to let's talk about the scene because I think this is something that kind of ties into what we just talked about. And I, I think I, I told you guys before, uh, you know, I don't have theories. I have things that I want to rule out. At the risk of, of putting on a tinfoil hat here, I, I just want to state that I think that this idea of this accident scene being staged, I'm not going to say that I think that that happened, but there is enough questions around it that I think you have to open up your mind to the fact that things didn't happen as cut and dry as we've been led to believe. And, you know, before I even get into particulars, if I'm going to believe that the scene was staged, which I don't know if I do or not, I'm going to lean in the direction of she ran into a local dirtbag in the area and they staged or had her stage the car in that scene for a reason. Not some grand conspiracy where something happened to her 400 miles away and they picked this area. It's hard to pin that down. But if she ran into trouble at the gas station, somewhere else, you hear all about the earlier supposed 7 a.m. scanner call, different things like that. She could have very easily ran into trouble somewhere else in that area and met her demise there and had the scene staged to cover for that by somebody local who knew what they were doing. And I think this is kind of what I wanted to touch with you guys on the scene is when you think about it, you've heard lots of different accounts over the years of what was, you know, what was happening there. You have to go back to the initial accounts from the people who were there as close to the time as it happened as possible and look at that from an objective lens. 
And me as a reporter, if I'm reporting on this story, I want to focus on the descriptors. What people are, you, what words are they using to describe at the scene? And I think that starts with, for me, people describe hearing a thump, not a crash, not squealing, not a skid, a thump. That's a different sound than what you would think from a car crash. People also describe the car as being off the road, not crashed, not damaged, not, you know, spun out, but off the road. People describe the road as being dry. You know, Tim Westman went to a lot of descriptors to describe how dry the road was. And if you listen to early interviews or read early interviews from Tim Westman, he uses the word baffled to describe how she made the corner, but then crashed. His exact words were, it just doesn't happen that way. Here's a guy at the scene who sees a lot of her, has supposedly seen a lot of accidents that way, who can't figure out why she crashed the way that she did. And then you go back and, and listen to Dick Guy on the Oxygen series. He says the part that was inexplicable, again, focus on that word inexplicable, sounds a lot like baffled. The part that was inexplicable to me was why anyone would shave off the inside of a corner. If you have if you lose control of the car, you generally would proceed in the direction that inertia would take you as opposed to a tight maneuver like that. That's his exact words from that scene. He was one of the first people to view that. If you look at accident reports, there's no debris, there's no skid marks. Many people have said definitively that car didn't hit a tree. Now, I know that that's what a lot of people believe, but think about that. Now, this is when I think about the scene, People always focus on the timeline or focus on different things in terms of whether the car hit a tree. What I focus on is how'd the car spin around? How'd the car end up spun around? And I've heard this, you know, well, she backed it out. First of all, if she backed it out, why didn't she leave? And second of all, if she backed it out, why leave it on the wrong side of the road facing the wrong way? She could back it out, just pull onto the westbound side and pull off on that shoulder. Why is the car, why is the car facing the wrong direction? Yeah, I I think what we've uh, talked about is it's coming around, right? It's it's heading it's it's heading in in an easterly direction. So uh, it comes around that corner, and that corner is you're you're essentially uh, cornering left, right? If you're coming from that direction, you're cornering left. If she had missed that corner, if she was looking at something, and I know I've said it before, oh, she must have overcorrected. It's such a lazy thing to say, and I and I feel embarrassed that I've even said this. If if she missed that corner, she's on, <laughs> assuming she's driving on the proper side of the road, if she missed that corner and went to overcorrect, she's turning to the left and overcorrecting, uh, therefore her back, the back end of her car would connect with uh, a snowbank on the right-hand side of the road, right? You'd think, and, and to your point, I can picture her overcorrecting like you describe and then losing control of the car and then immediately recorrecting and heading yep. right into the snowbank where she was. Can you picture that scenario playing out without anything other than a thump being heard or her having enough speed in a, in a multi-directional maneuver like that to set off the airbags? That's, it, that's where I, that's where I struggle with that. No, you're, you're totally right. Setting off the airbags is going to take some sort of impact on the front of the car. Um, and her overcorrecting to the point where she spins around facing the other direction uh, is super interesting to me because what did she hit at the front of the car? Why didn't that stop her if the airbags went off? The airbags went off because she hit something in the front of her car. How did she end up spinning around and facing the other direction? And also, uh, real quick, before I forget, when they say that she shaved off part of the snowbank, which side of the road was that snowbank shaved off? What was? He's talking about on the, on the westbound side. So right. he's saying, why didn't the car drift off? The, but So she pulled a tight maneuver, in his words, which is what you described, which is overcorrecting and then recorrecting. I can see that happening. But can you see that happening in the context of the descriptors that I just mentioned, which is no description of a crash, hearing just a thump, no damage to the bumper, enough of an impact after two corrections to be traveling at the 30 miles an hour that has been speculated was necessary to produce the crash that she, and then again, to me, it comes back to if she was able to back the car up out of where she was, why did she leave it the way that she did? And why didn't she drive away? I don't know. 
Now, I don't think she backed the car out because um, she wasn't able to start it again after the accident. And I want to point out that um, the impact at the front of her car could have just been the ditch. I think that's kind of an often forgotten uh, element of that actual scene is that there is a little dip right there. It's several feet uh, long and, and even deep, maybe a couple feet deep. So that, that I think that could account for the accident, that plus the uh, the snowbank, or I'm sorry, could account for the damage. As far as the accident goes, I'm just as confused as you guys. I've always looked at the scene and, and not understood how uh, it happened if she was heading the direction we've always been told. Oh, just real quick. I, I just want to say there is a ditch there and we've seen it, but we've seen it without snow. And we were told that there are snowbanks there. Uh, so I don't know if it was even possible for that called for that car to fall into a ditch with the snowbanks right there. Snowbank could have been past the ditch. Could have been, uh, you know, pushed. I mean, how did she turn the car around though? At that point, well, I I'm looking at it as separate issues. Um, the w- the way the car ended up and that ditch with the icy snowbank. You know, I'm assuming that uh, as as snowbanks get here in New England, they get ice hard, like rock hard, especially in February. Yeah, yeah, when they're packed down and it's an old storm um, and there's some rain or whatever on on top of it, too. Uh, but, yeah, so that ditch plus, like, the real hard um, little snowbank, and it was a small snowbank, too. So, But I, I just think that could account for it. Maybe it's the tree. I don't know. The police report says that. But, again, as far as the accident, I have no answers at all. I, I don't want to discount and make it sound like I'm trying to convince anyone that she didn't crash there. I, I think you're right. I think... Her going into the ditch could in some way account for the overhang impact that people describe. I have a hard time picturing it. I, I think that there is a lot of suspicion around that in the same sense of, again, it comes back to me, people described a thump, not a crash. What type of thump cracks the hood like it did, pushes the radiator like it did, and deploys the airbags? That, that's a crash, not a thump. People heard the, you know, the acceleration beforehand. I think it's also been mentioned that it's possible that she could have started the car. You know, I know that there is this inertia switch and different things like that. She may not have realized that she should have started the car. But again, let me bring you back to a couple of early accounts after the accident. Frank Kelly, Weeper, you know, as a quick aside, if nobody has ever participated in the early forums, you know, the family site forums way back in 2005, 2006, I would pay money for somebody to dig those up in their entirety because there is a lot of stuff that I think people who are newer to the case would find interesting in reviewing. But Frank Kelly was a very prominent poster. Some people would maybe accuse him of you know, creating his own narrative. John Marat, the quote unquote silent witness right there described to Frank Kelly, the car had its trouble lights on and backing up parallel to the road. To Christine McDonald, the car backed up parallel to the road. So here is somebody right there at the scene describing to two different people that he saw that car backing up parallel to the road, which tells me that either happened before the impact, I I would guess highly unlikely, or after the impact. And if it's her in the car and she can back up out of the ditch, why would she leave? And why would she leave the car on the wrong side of the road if she could pull it over to the other side of the road and make it look more natural? Do we know that it was actually backing up or do we do we know that that was reverse lights? I think that's a great question because the car was facing the wrong wrong way on the wrong side of the road. And I've yeah. never talked to him or those people, but it still to me speaks to multiple accounts of the car being moved after arriving there. And I think that raises a ton of questions. And and this is the other thing and this might be even more prominent than any of these other things. There are a lot of accounts that put the actual accident scene in the original place of the car much further east down the road towards the intersection of Bradley Hill Road. If you listen to Barbara Atwood, Barbara Atwood puts it down further closer to the Marats and Forcier. If you listen to Cecil Smith and even look really hard into some of what John Monahan says in terms of in the oxygen transcripts about, he says something like, well, if the car was another hundred feet down the road, it would have been my jurisdiction. That puts it a lot closer to Bradley Hill Road than where it was found. Not to say that I have a theory related to that, only to say what my overarching point here is, which is something about the scene is not right. No, you're, you're, you're right. Going back to all of the old accounts, every, every account from um, newspaper articles quoting neighbors or, or police, and this is another thing that I've just been super dismissive of, 
that it didn't add up in my head, but I just dismissed it, is most of those accounts say it was about 100 yards from uh Bradley Hill it was a like it, it was about a hundred yards that you know the dogs lost the scent right at Bradley Hill which was about a hundred yards from the accident site and even standing at the accident site I remember standing there and looking and saying that's definitely longer than a hundred yards like if you're directly across from the Westman's if you're close to old Peters Road if you're at where the the ribbon is that's more like 200 yards uh, it could even it could be more than 200 yards uh, and uh, and 100 yards is something that people can sort of determine in their head without really doing a lot of math. You know, you can look and say that's eh, about a football field. You know, you can you can think that and because you've seen it on TV, you've seen it, you know, and 100 yards is a very round answer to give. If it was I feel like if it was more than 100 yards, people would say, you know, it was it was maybe 150, 200 yards, you know, but 100 is like, it's always been stated as 100, but when you're there at the ribbon and you look, you go, no, that that's not 100 yards from the ribbon. Yeah, it's more. Even Tim Westman, when you guys nailed him down with John Smith that time and we're chatting with him, he made it very clear, even in a, to a smaller degree, the ribbon tree is not where he saw the car. It was by the Grove of Three, right? So what do all of these things tell us? I have no idea. Does it tell us more was in the car? Does it tell us something? I have no idea. All it tells us is there's something not right and something happened. And I go back to James Renner had this line. I can't remember where it was, where maybe it was in his book where he said, we don't know what happened to Mora because we don't know what happened on Wild Amanusic Road that night. And I think that is what it comes down to is we don't have a clue what happened in that little space and who was involved. And I've always subscribed to, well, if this was a staged accident by her or if this was a staged accident by somebody else, why wouldn't she drive another five minutes? Because for those who don't know, once you get past Bradley Hill Road, that becomes a remote, desolate mountain road for the next 20 minutes. If you were going to stage a car, where would be better than to just dump it in the woods where, or, you know, on the side of the road where nobody would ever see it? Think about it from this perspective, and this goes back to a lot of what Frank Kelly talked about in some of his early investigation. What if she ran into an earlier demise with a local? Maybe the 7 a.m. scanner call put her in position to be in a tough spot with a local dirt bag. What if that local dirt bag knew that the jurisdiction changed right there at that accident scene? And what if they had enough forethought to say, if I dump her car here, the first responder is going to be behavioral police. And it won't be until they then get state police on scene that anybody's going to be able to go east. So if I want to dump the car there, and then I want to flee east because I know it's going to take a while before anybody looks east, then that becomes the perfect place to dump a car. Then on top of that, you put the fact that all these guys can't figure out how to go east. It makes for the perfect getaway if somebody really knew what they were doing. Yeah, it's interesting if if someone was aware of the jurisdictional lines. That that is definitely interesting. I think that's kind of, uh, a big part of your point. Um, the the seven p.m. call. I just want to point out that seven p.m. I think you said seven a.m. Uh, that scanner call, police call, uh, heard on the scanner that is, um, I think has been redacted or not released. So there's some mystery regarding that call uh, still. So I know that was the you know the call that's been kind of bandied about over the years about a you know car off the road and a female supposedly leaves in a private vehicle and multiple people have reported hearing that it's not in the records we don't know if it exists that may or may not be part of this narrative whether or not it is or not I think some of the questions around the scene still stand and I think it again comes back to did she encounter a random event and this is part of it or did the accident happen exactly the way it's been described and we just can't you know piece it together in a way that makes sense because we weren't there to see it or hear it i think it could go either way i think the only other thing that i would mention about that is did we underestimate how far she could have made it on foot from that scene because she's a runner and if she decided that she was going to take off running because she knew she was going to be in trouble to me if she made it past Bradley Hill down 112, or even if she made it a good ways down Old Peters, all bets are off on where she could be because she could have been picked up by someone who took her who knows where, and we may never find her. And I think it's it's definitely realistic to think she took off running without knowing the area, not knowing that, hey, I've passed nothing but civilization to here. If I keep running, I'm gonna go to the next door. Having no idea that she's about to head into the forest with nothing there. 
And then she gets down there, she starts to get tired, she starts to get cold. Now I'm gonna flag the first car that comes by. And because it didn't happen at the scene, we have no way of fitting, and in that sense, there could have been a struggle. There could have been a murder there for all that we know. But because it's so remote, nobody ever saw it. And how are we ever gonna nail that down? These are the type of things that make me struggle with the fact that we may never be able to pin down what really happened to her. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.